Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Dr. Angelo Valandez is talking with us on our program. He's a physician and researcher at Harvard Medical School. He is also co-founder of Advanced Care Planning Decisions, which is a nonprofit organization we're going to find out about in the course of our discussion. And he's also authored The Conversation, a revolutionary plan for end-of-life care. We're going to talk with him about the book and his work in our discussion. It's nice to have you join us on our program. Thank you for having me. And good morning to you. I have a lot of thoughts surrounding um, this book and your work, but in introducing you, I mentioned Advanced Care Planning Decisions. You're a co-founder of the nonprofit organization. How do you describe what it does? The nonprofit's mission is to better inform people about their medical options, especially at the end of life. You know, today we live and die in a healthcare system that doesn't honor and respect patients' wishes. When we ask people where they want to die, 86% of Americans say they want to die outside of the hospital and at their home. But what are the facts? Most people are still dying in our hospitals and in nursing homes, often tethered to machines and in pain. So what we're trying to do is to transform healthcare so that we could actually honor people's wishes to die outside of the hospital. You know, some of the people listening to this discussion may be surprised because in introducing you, I said, you're a physician, and they're hearing, well, wait a minute. Here's what he's saying about our system. Doesn't this kind of run contrary to the system that he's working in? (laughs) This is true, and uh, some people might be unhappy about that. But look, you know, although we talk about having a patient-centered healthcare system, uh, the book's about the fact that it's not patient-centered. It's really healthcare system-centered. We do things in healthcare that we know most patients, when they're more informed, simply do not want. And that's why I tell people, just look at what the facts are. New York State is the worst state when it comes to patients dying in hospitals. And we know that most people don't want to die in the hospital. Most people, when we ask them, if you have a serious terminal illness, where do you want to die? Most people say at home, surrounded by their loved ones, and yet that's not the case. And the book is really a call to action for people to know what's going on in our healthcare system, because I think if people truly understood, they would really be outraged. And so after reading the book, I hope people are outraged so that they can start taking back healthcare. When you say start taking back health care, taking it back how? Well, as a physician, um, I take care of people who are sick in the hospital all the time. And what I notice is that none of my colleagues, very few colleagues, very few doctors, are having the conversation, having an open and honest discussion about people's wishes. And so the main reason why we see this misalignment between the type of medical care people are getting in the hospital and the type of medical care they want is because clinicians aren't sitting down, slowing down, and actually talking with patients. I think if most of us did that, 
if most patients and families actually talked about this, we wouldn't have the mess that we have in healthcare today. Well, what's really behind that, though? I mean, these are your colleagues. Um, why is it that they well, don't have the conversation? There are lots of reasons. First, my colleagues and I got into medicine because we want to help people. But the problem is we've designed a system, a healthcare system, that makes it very difficult to not do everything. You know, when a patient comes into the hospital, the assumption is do everything unless a patient has stated in advance, whether written or through family members, stated that they don't want everything. And so most of us, most of the doctors are not having this conversation, and therefore we all assume that when the patient comes into the hospital, indeed they do want everything. You know, it's interesting you say that because I also think about something. One of my colleagues here at WFAN actually mentioned this in discussion on Saturday afternoon. When I told him about the fact we were going to have our discussion, and he said this is an area of discussion that certainly now is getting the attention of more and more baby boomers. How can that motivate the discussion, the conversation broadening? Yeah, my hope is really with the baby boomers, because right now a lot of baby boomers are dealing with this issue with their parents, an elderly mother with advanced Alzheimer's disease or an elderly father with advanced cancer. And so they're seeing how poorly the healthcare system um, treats patients with advanced illness and my hope is that they're learning how to navigate the healthcare system so that by the time they are in that position, they'll know what to do. And it's really simple. It's just asking a few simple questions like, what's important to you? What's a good day? What are the sort of medical things you would or would not want if you couldn't do those activities? And where do you want to spend the end of your life? You know, even though I'm calling it um, your end of your life or a good death, it's not about a good death. It's about good life because we're all going to die someday. So every good life deserves a good ending. So we just want to honor and respect people's wishes. That's what this is really about. And I think I have a lot of faith in baby boomers and in patients who are going to be empowered to know how to answer these questions to really reform, to reform and transform healthcare as we know it today. And in a way, aren't the baby boomers also at times being faced with looking at the reality that they too are going to die? Absolutely. It's, it's a fact of life. So why don't we try to take back health care? Why don't patients truly become the center of health care and let patients be in the driver's seat, not the health care system? Hmm. Well, now, I didn't ask you a couple of questions at the beginning of uh, this discussion. Some of the people listening might have expected from me. Uh, you mentioned something about talking about you and your colleagues, why you got into uh, medicine. But let's ask this question in a little bit more detail. What was it that motivated you to become a doctor? What motivated for me to become a doctor, there are a lot of reasons. Um, one is that during college, I had an experience taking care of a professor and his wife, and she was very sick. And I realized that so much in her decisions had to do with understanding um, what was important to her about what sort of medical things she did and did not want. 
And even though I didn't plan on becoming a doctor, it was that experience of seeing someone going through the dying process that really made me think about, well, gosh, this seems something that's so important to people, and I wanted to help people through that process. And that's honestly how I got into um, interested in medical school and then eventually went on uh, to, to, uh, to med school. And when you say that the focus, you know, when you talk about the title of the book, you're talking about the content of the book, you know, some people may hear end of life and think, oh, well, the focus here is death. And we get into this whole thing with our society, which is very much of a death-denying society. Does that potentially inhibit people from even having a real discussion or conversation? You know, the United States is one of the unique countries that doesn't talk about this. And I think it has to do with our cultural predilection to always look for the next new thing, to the next uh, immortality um, cure or um, this denial of death. And unfortunately, um, I see it within my colleagues as well. Uh, but I think that's part of the reason why a lot of us are uncomfortable having this discussion. But I think if people read some of the stories in the book, because what I do is I take seven of my patients that I personally took care of and talk about how their end-of-life care hinged on whether or not they had a conversation with their doctor. I think if people understood what's going to happen to you if you don't have this discussion, I think that might urge them into starting this discussion on their own. Um, and that's the real goal of the book, is to have people start this process, not in the hospital, but at home with their loved ones, and years before they become critically ill. Some of the people listening to us will say, all right, this sounds like a great idea, but in the real world, how do I just start this discussion with a loved one? Yeah, so the book is not only a memoir, it's also, it's also a how-to. So I actually give you a step-by-step -step approach. What are the questions you should be asking? What do you fill out? What are the forms you need to fill out? And New York State has its own unique forms that people need to fill out. But then I offer suggestions. You know, one thing I tell people is don't just have this conversation with your son or daughter and your physician. Go ahead and use your iPhone and iPad or your tablet and record a short video saying what's important to you, saying what your wishes are. And then go ahead and email that short video to your loved ones, to your friends, to your doctor, and this way, when you are sick, they can actually refer back to that video. And eventually, someday, although it's not the case today, that video may be part of your electronic medical record. Um, we don't have that today, but eventually that'll be the case where people's videos will be uploaded. And this way, if it's 3 in the morning and I'm the ER doc and you come into my hospital, even though you might be too sick to talk to me, perhaps I could view a video instead of a form that tells me I want this or not this. A video would be so much more informational to me, informative to me, uh, to understand who you are and what was important to you. When you're in that situation, you are that ER doc. You have that person come in. It's 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. What are the sort of things that are going through your head when you're trying to figure out basically the answers to the kind of questions you're raising? Right. Well, unfortunately, that's the worst time to have this conversation. It's the worst time to ask someone who feels horrible and is coming into my emergency room, who's probably vomiting, um, who's not able to talk with me. It's the worst time to start that conversation or to start it with their family members. 
So as an ER doctor, I think most of my colleagues would say, well, I have to do everything possible now because no one had this conversation before this patient came to my emergency room. You know, especially for patients with the advanced stages of cancer or the advanced stages of other illnesses like congestive heart failure, a lot of patients don't want to be in the hospital or in an emergency room or a lot of frail elderly patients who are living in our nursing homes. They don't want to go back and forth to the hospital through the emergency room. So unfortunately, what ends up happening is that people do end up in the emergency room and they end up in our hospitals, um, despite the fact that if someone had a conversation with them, informed them about their medical options, they would have preferred not to be there. It's an unfortunate reality that happens far too often across our country. And I must say, it, it happens a lot more frequently in the Empire State. Let us take a uh, pause in our discussion with you, uh, Dr. Yolandis. We'll come back. A lot more to get into in discussion. First, look around the sporting world after our 8 o'clock update. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program here on The Fan. We're talking on our program on The Fan, Sports Radio 66, Sports Radio 1019, with Dr. Angelo Volandes, who is uh, talking with us about the book, The Conversation, A Revolutionary Plan for End-of-Life Care. And he has joined us by phone on our program. He's a physician and a researcher at Harvard Medical School, also co-founder of, of Advanced Care Planning Decisions, which is a nonprofit organization. And he is talking with us uh, on our program. In doing this book and, you know, relating those stories that you mentioned, you know, the kind of a, a memoir, for you personally, what was that like? It was really um, trying because these are my patients. Mm-hmm. Part of what went wrong was my fault. And so it's part confession for myself of how when I was learning to be a doctor, I perpetrated the same problems that I'm describing in the book and that it took me close to a decade to really to, to recognize that I was part of the problem, but I could also be part of the solution. And as I mentioned uh, when we started, doctors get into medicine to do the right thing, but we're sometimes led into a system that doesn't allow us to do the right thing. And so hopefully, I think in the last six months, we've seen so much about end-of-life care, about making uh, people aware of what they can do, but also talking about how technology can help us. For example, as part of the book, we have a short video that's a step-by-step guide for people to empower themselves. And we have it on YouTube. It's at theconversationbook.org, so that's theconversationbook.org where you can empower yourself. It's a short five-minute video that tells you step-by-step what are the questions you need to ask, what are the forms you need to fill out, what are your options for medical care. And I hope that um, when people view the video, buy the book, read the stories, that they will try, um, because it's not just doctors that are going to fix the system, it's patients and families. We all need to overhaul the system because it's truly broken at every level. And what is the actual power of the average citizen in that process of fixing the system? Well, today it's close to zero because right now the healthcare system has all the power because the healthcare system has all the knowledge. If you go into the hospital and a provider, a clinician's not going to have a discussion with you and tell you about your medical options, then your ability to navigate that is close to zero. 
But why can't we empower patients, empower families with the knowledge that they need to know their medical options? And that's why I think the development of videos and YouTube is tremendous because people learn through visual images. And in short, easy-to-understand videos, people can understand what their options are. They can know what their options are so that when they go into the hospital, they're not waiting for the doctor to bring this up. They're telling the doctor what's important to them. And I think it flips that power dynamic that we have today because today the patient sort of waits there for the doctor to raise this issue. Well, what if we primed and activated patients with videos? Then they're the ones who are going to bring it up. And we actually have studies. We not only create these short videos in our nonprofit, but we actually study them. And what we find is that when patients actually have the information that they need through watching a video, they're the ones that start the conversation with the doctor. That's truly revolutionary, and that's where the subtitle comes back. Because what I'm trying to do is put all the power back to the patient so that when they know their options, I think most patients will make sure that they get the type of medical care that they want, but on their terms. Let's take a step back in the career of a doctor, back to medical school. End-of-life care, end-of-life decisions. How's that really covered? <laughs> what a wonderful question. And I think when you mentioned what can we do to change it, um, you know, my faith is in patients and families, but I do think it needs to be a multi-pronged approach. And going back to medical school is where we can start as a, as a um, healthcare system. Look, when we recruit, when we accept applicants to medical school, what do we look at? We look at whether or not they took not only organic chemistry, but the hardest class in organic chemistry, not only physics, but the hardest class in physics. That's what's valued, the sciences. And sure, the sciences are important, but I'll be honest, I studied organic chemistry, physics, biochemistry, but I don't use that on a daily basis when I'm seeing patients. And yet, when I got into medical school, not a single person ever asked me, can you actually talk to a patient? <laughs> and yet, I talk to patients as a doctor every day. So I think we need to revamp our medical school system where we're not valuing just the sciences. Yes, let's value the sciences, but also let's value the ability to communicate. Let's value students who have taken English literature, who have taken philosophy, who have understood some of the questions that patients as human beings need to face when it comes to the end of life. But we shouldn't just stop at medical school. Let's talk about residency training. Residency training is some of the most brutal training during a doctor's career. And it's because the number of patients you see, but also the number of hours that you're working. Um, we do have a, a, a law now where residents cannot work more than 80 hours per week. So we're trying to cram into them how to treat uh, acid-based disturbances, how to treat patients on breathing machines, how to understand uh, these, uh, you know, HIV and Ebola. Um, so we need to also value how to train residents to talk to patients, how to train residents to have the conversation. Um, you know, by the time I finished residency, which was 10 years ago, I had to show competency in how to insert uh, a central line, how to do uh, lumbar punctures, and how to do codes. And yet not a single clinician ever asked me, can you actually have an end-of-life conversation with a patient and their loved ones? Um, I think we're changing slowly, but it's not enough. We need to really focus on how uh, medical students, 
residents and young senior doctors, how they start having these conversations. We need to start focusing on that and treat it just as importantly as we do um, the other things that we do in medicine. You in the book, in the book again, is entitled The Conversation. You talk about, this is early on in the book, this term code blue. And there's a great story uh, that is told uh, in the book. Let me ask you, though, because I've always been curious about this. As a doctor, you hear that term code blue. What goes through your head? A lot of adrenaline. <laughs> I mean, even though you just mentioned it now, it's a flashback uh, to when I'm in the hospital. It's that moment where someone's heart has stopped and you are racing so that you can get that heart to beat again. Not a second more goes by than has to um, so that you can restart that heart and make sure that patient has blood flowing to their brain. Uh, it's one of the dramatic moments in every physician's career and we've done remarkable things in modern medicine in a short period of time. We are able to save hundreds of thousands of people doing these amazing procedures, probably millions of people over the course of the last few decades. But you know, the problem is with medicine is our growing toolkit of fixes. We need to know when to use and not to use those fixes. And so with a code blue, the dramatic art act is when you perform CPR. And CPR has saved millions of people. And it's a wonderful thing, but it's a wonderful thing in people who have a good chance of surviving. And the people that I focus on, the patients that I focus on in my book are the patients who had a very, very, very small, if any chance of surviving CPR, and those are the patients with advanced illness who we know from many, many studies don't do well um, from CPR, don't survive CPR, or if they do, they have many, many complications and never go back to their previous uh, functional status. So um, it's one of the high points, but it's also one of the low points of modern medicine. And when we talk about modern medicine and end-of-life decisions, discussions, uh, wishes, a term that often comes up is this idea of what's referred to as a living will. What do you think of those? Yeah, so let's, um, the general term is an advanced directive, mm -hmm. an advanced directive, which uh, New York State had, was at the forefront of uh, putting out in the healthcare system comes in two flavors. One's a living will and the other is a healthcare proxy or a healthcare surrogate. With a living will, it's essentially a form that a patient fills out and it describes a variety of interventions and scenarios. So it's very much a checkbox of if I have this illness, I want this or I don't want this. Or if this happens to me, I would want CPR or I don't want CPR. And also in the state of New York, there's some unusual uh, checkboxes when it comes to things like feeding tubes and hydration. So it's all these checkboxes. And I have to be honest, as a physician, I'm never sure what to do with these forms because I didn't fill it out with you. So I'm assuming that a knowledgeable person actually walked you through this often complicated form, that you had a pretty good idea 
of what we mean by feeding tube or hydration or CPR or breathing machine. And the truth is most patients have no idea what any of that means. And so when I'm stuck with this form and I have a sick patient who can't speak to me, I have a problem because all of a sudden I'm assuming that this form indeed was filled out correctly, that the patient actually understood all their options and what the success rate, the risks and benefits of all these procedures were. And the fact is most patients don't. So although we say, you know, do your best to fill out a living will, I like to say if you're going to fill it out, at least make sure you understand what all the terms mean. Now, the other form, the other type of advanced directive, I think, is the much better one to fill out. I think everybody should fill out both, by the way. But I think the other one is the one that I focus on, and that's picking your healthcare surrogate or proxy. And that's someone that you designate to make decisions on your behalf when you can't make decisions. And what I tell people is not only designate someone, but actually have the conversation with that person. Tell them, answer those questions. And these are all the questions that I go through in the book. What's important to you? What's a good day? What are your hopes and fears when it comes to medical care? Where do you want to spend the end of your life? You know, these are the questions that you should be having a conversation with your proxy so that when the, when the time comes that they're trying to make decisions for you, they're not guessing. Because most people who guess either guess incorrectly or guess no better than chance. Dr. Angelo Volanda is talking with us on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. His book is entitled The Conversation, A Revolutionary Plan for End-of-Life Care. A lot more to get to here on The Fan. A guest who's joined us previously on our program, Dr. Frida Birnbaum. We've always had interesting discussions when we've spoken with you, Dr. Birnbaum. With that first date, how do you suggest being able to spot somebody who falls in the category of being a sociopath or a narcissist or somebody who's going to be codependent? Well, that's an interesting question because here's the first hint. If you're on Facebook or if you're looking at each other on the Internet and that person has more than three pictures of him or herself posing, you'll know that there's something there that's a little bit narcissistic uh, and may want you to sort of step back and second guess uh, if that person is right for you. More than three pictures of yourself. More than three pictures. You know, you want someone to have maybe a, a picture of a puppy or a picture of his, you know, nieces and nephews or her nieces and nephews or nature or activities. Uh, volunteer work is something that really makes people feel good about you. Any kind of caring venture, something that's connecting with other people, that's nice, fuzzy, warm feeling. But when you're just trying to show your appearance and you're posing all the time, that's not an easy sell. So if somebody falls in that category, I mean, you suggest... You run? Well, you, you don't run, but you become aware of, wait a minute, is this person self-centered? Is this person, if he's a man taking off his shirt and posing, his flexing his muscles, is it more about him than about me? So, you know, narcissistic qualities are not the best to have in a partner. Uh, somebody who's psychopath also has those qualities. The psychopathic tendencies are people who have big egos, um, they're arrogant, they have charisma, and they have charm. 
and they like to be the authority, which is not bad, by the way, if you want to be the president of the United States, because a lot of the best presidents do have psychopathic tendencies. What about spotting somebody who's going to be codependent? Now, that's trickier, because somebody who's codependent will use the word I a lot, you know. I like to do this. I want to do this with you. This is what I need. So that's a person who is needy. Uh, hopefully, it's not often as much the case as it used to be, uh, but it's often women because women look at love as all of them and men look at love as part of who they are, and that's often where the problem begins. So, yes, that is an, an issue. It's something very important to look to. If somebody appears to be codependent, do you want to keep pulling that person along in your relationship? So if somebody on a first date starts pointing out what you both have in common and it seems like they're over-magnifying the significance and importance of these commonalities, is that a warning sign? Well, that person is over-anxious. That person is showing some neediness. You're right. Uh, and it is something to look uh, to. But then again, when that anxiety changes and lifts, uh, is that person more relaxed? Is that person more him or herself? Then you can meet the real person. Because after all, first dates, second dates, even third dates, it's hard. You're trying to impress the other person. But here's a heads up. If that person is just talking about themselves, if they're trying to win you over and boasting a lot, that's something to look at too because it's going to be about that person. If that person is not nice to the waiter or the waitress or they're putting them down in some way, what does it tell them about the way they see other people around them? that they're going to do the same thing to you after a while if you don't match up to that person's standards. So there are a lot of things to look for. An interesting thing, an interesting study was even what a person eats. If a person drinks, now this sounds ridiculous because having a cup of coffee uh, with someone on a date means more than just having a cup of coffee. If that person uh, drinks uh, black coffee, that person is more self-centered and more of a psychopath. And I'll tell you why. It sounds like a far stretch because people who drink black coffee tend to be very involved with their weight. They tend to be very involved with their nutrition. It's high antioxidants, and they're usually more self-centered. And if, they, if you, your second date goes on to dessert uh, or the third date, uh, dessert that people order, if it's sweet, if it's um, gooey or whatever, that they like these different textures, that person has the ability to be warm and caring. Now, I didn't do the study. I'm just quoting you the study uh, for people to, you know, it's something just to look at. I don't know how seriously you could take it. One of the issues that comes up often after a first date is this whole idea of contact with the other person. You know, um, in many cases, the issue is brought up or ideas brought up of, okay, when should I contact that person? But it's kind of more than that, isn't it? It's not just so much 
when should I contact them, but especially in the age in which we live with social media and the like, it's going to be how much you contact the person. That's, that's very important uh, because it's such an easy access today to contact someone without having to be verbal. Uh, you could text, uh, you could go on, online, and the problem with that is be, there's no connection, so it's easier to do. But because it's easier to do in some way, you don't give often the relationship a chance because you're going on to the next one because it's so accessible. But your question about how often to contact someone, you have to go with your gut feeling. If you really had a great time, there's nothing wrong with telling that person, I really had a fantastic time. I'd love to see you again. When are you available? That shows you have confidence. Uh, that shows that you're on target. And if that person feels the same way, why not? When you're reserved on purpose, you may lose that moment of excitement. We're talking on our program with Dr. Frida Birnbaum. She's a research psychologist, psychoanalyst, author of What Price Power? An In-Depth Study of the Professional Woman in a Relationship. She's an expert on depression, women's issues, and attaining happiness, and she's our guest in this portion of the program. Social media, I mentioned, everybody, it seems, is involved with this in one form or another these days. Let me ask you about the situation with Facebook, and when you say the word Facebook, the next word for many people becomes friends. Facebook friends, open-ended question here, are they really your friends? Facebook friends are people that you know, or some you may not even know, that are letting others know what a good time they're having, which means they're going on vacations, they're celebrating weddings, births. They're not telling you anything that's too intimate. These are people that you may not have the same kind of relationship as someone who comes into your home or you go and you have lunch with one-on-one -on -one, when you can share positive and negative experiences. You only see them at their best. And not only that, it does promote negative feelings in you as well at times because you may not be doing all these wonderful things. Then you start questioning your own lifestyle as well. You know, there's... Um... Something I read in background in preparing for our discussion today that some people could have and do have hundreds, in some cases even thousands of friends on Facebook. But in reality, they can only really depend on four of them. That was a pretty amazing statistic when I stopped and thought about it. But then again, you do stop and think, of those Facebook friends, how many of them do you really know and do you really have any contact with, I guess, Dr. Bernard? That's so true. I often get uh, this uh, view of people having birthdays, and I'm thinking, do I really know them? <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> and should I send them a message, happy birthday? And then I say, I better do it just in case. So I don't want to, you know, pretend, but I don't want to upset anybody either. So you're, there's this fine line between what to do on Facebook, but you're absolutely right. You know, three or four friends, if you could have that, 
that's about as good as it could get because who has time for more anyway? <laughs> uh, am I right? I mean, you have so much in there going with relatives and activities, obligations, working. If you can have uh, me, I feel if you can have one or two friends to confide in that you can trust that will tell you what you need to hear to help you go on the right path. And as a friend, you know, you need to do both. You need to give and take. It's a back-and-forth relationship. And, you know, somebody that you feel really comfortable with, that you can be down, that you don't have to look your best, and that friend will keep coming back. That's what a true friend is for and is about someone who touches your soul, someone where there's a connection of understanding, where you don't even have to talk, who's not competitive, who wishes you well. And that's not easy to find often. You know, when I mention social media, a natural follow-up question, if I can pose this to you, is perhaps the broader context of what social media and um, the explosion in popularity, growth, use of it in our society, what, what does this mean for basic communication? I mean, obviously this has changed things drastically with several generations, especially the millennials. My, the first thought that comes to my mind is very negative, and I know that progress and science and technology is extremely important and has put us on the map for many things in our lives. But when you think about it, we think about dating, and it's just another button away, uh, you know, another uh, push away with that mouse to get another person to date, and it's so easy. Uh, it's too easy to meet the wrong people. Uh, when you're not too satisfied with one, it used to be you would have opportunities to meet people by being introduced, by going to different activities, organizations, in school. But now it's just a, a push away of, of, of meeting the new, uh, different person. And that's not too good because it's too convenient to go on to the next. And although people are getting married later for different reasons, that's one of the reasons that it's not being taken as seriously as it used to be with people living together and then separate breaking up because they're arguing rather than getting married and they're going to argue anyway and saying, you know what, it's too messy, let's stay together. But I'm getting off the topic. So let's go to the next question of, you know, the new millennials. And they're setting the pace for the baby boomers. They're stepping up. And a lot of what they're saying makes a lot of sense. Yes, they're too much on the computer, and the computer is taking them away from nature. And you know what? It's affecting their longevity because, as we were talking about connecting with friends, do you know I have a 15-year-old, and I said to him, why don't you have any friends coming over? Well, Ma, if they come over, we can't play on these games together. There's nothing to do. We can't game, so that means they have to be somewhere else for them to compete uh, with each other. And then there's the cell phones when you're going out. Just yesterday, again, I was looking to see, is this couple just sitting there and they're texting other people? Don't they have anything else to talk about? So with that little box is becoming more important than what you're actually doing. And I was wondering, you know, what about pedestrians? What about accidents? Well, guess what? Now, again, they are really looking into that because there are more accidents with pedestrians now because everybody's texting. 
So it's really taking us away from each other. Our guest, Rita Birnbaum, a research psychologist, psychoanalyst, the author of What Price Power, an in-depth study of the professional woman in a relationship. Dr. Birnbaum, thank you very much for joining us on our program, sharing the insights that you have. It sounds like you have a lot of fun with the work that you do as well. I really have fun. I enjoy it. Thank you. That's our one of our program. A lot more to get to. And another guest joins us after our top of the hour update here on The Fan. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by uh, Dr. Carlos Hill. Dr. Hill is an associate professor of history at Texas Tech University. Uh, He is talking with us on our program about an interesting book entitled Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory. Um, Dr. Hill is uh, joining us by phone on our program from his home in the state of uh, Texas. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. A lot of different thoughts come to mind um, in beginning this discussion, but I'll ask a question I normally ask authors. Your motivation for this book, what was that? You know, I wanted to write a book that really helped us to think differently about the history of lynching. Too often, I think, even amongst historians, but definitely amongst the, you know, uh, the public, we have one way of understanding lynching, and that is of African Americans being victims of lynching and whites being the perpetrators of lynching. And so in my study of lynching, I found that that wasn't always true, that in some cases, um, and there's a, there's a handful of cases of African Americans lynching other African Americans, There are instances where African-Americans didn't necessarily think of themselves as victims, but as heroic figures, lynch victims as victims, but as heroic figures. And so I wanted to write this, this book in order to really complicate our understanding of the black experience of lynching. When we talk about having even a conversation on this topic, for a lot of people it's a very painful conversation. How do you respond to that? Lynching is a very painful subject um, in African-American history. Um, and in many ways, people see the history of lynching or the era of lynching as the real low point in African-American history after the Civil War. And so it's definitely painful. And for me, as a young scholar, beginning to um, learn about the history in detail. There were many days that I was depressed. There was many days that I was angry. Um, but part of you know my maturation in the process was to really understand that the history of lynching wasn't just black victimization. There were many instances where African Americans fought back. There were many instances where African Americans mobilized and organized political movements in response to lynching. And so the history of lynching, while it's an ugly history, while it's a traumatic history, it's also a history of empowering stories. It's also a history of resilience. It's also a history of courage. And so it's, and this is in part why I wanted to write the book, because the history is much more complicated than we typically think about. A lot of people are repulsed by even the thought of lynching, but back in the mid to late 1800s, it was something that was, relatively speaking, accepted in a lot of communities. Can you tell us about that? 
Yes, I mean, the, the history of lynching uh, stretches back to the colonial era. Um, and actually the term lynching comes from Colonel Charles Lynch, who was a colonel in the American Revolutionary Army. And he was famous for uh, you know, punishing suspected British loyalists uh, by tarring and feathering them. You know, so he tarred and feathered them without giving them a trial. And so the term lynching, in many ways, comes from Charles Colonel Charles Lynch from the American Revolutionary Era. And so lynching stretches back all the way into the to the founding of America. And so in the you know, 18th century, the 19th and 19th century, lynching was a form of popular justice, particularly in rural areas, um, in, in 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 expanding areas, in in you know America, um, and so it has a long history, uh, and 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 to be quite honest, uh, you know. Whites were the primary victims of lynching uh, during the 18th century as well as 19th century. But things change uh, after the Civil War, particularly um, in around the, the 1880s, 1890s period, when African Americans become the primary targets of lynching. And this is where my book, Beyond the Rope Relief, picks up. Um, it's trying to tell the story of how lynching goes from being a form of a form of popular justice that's primarily target primary targets whites to a form of racial social control that primarily targets African Americans. And so after I in in the book I argue after about 1886 African Americans are the primary targets of lynching and lynching becomes synonymous with African Americans. And so we think of, you know, white lynch white lynch mobs and black victims as the totality of the history of lynching. It's actually just one chapter of lynching uh, in America. The Chicago Tribune in 1882 actually started keeping lynching statistics. Did that surprise you when you found that out? In some ways it was surprising, in part because... um, in, even in the 1880s, and even though lynching had a long history, um, there was really no real reason for the Chicago Tribune in, in 1882 to begin to collect data, um, because this is well before the modern anti-lynching movement uh, emerges. This is before there are loud outcries against lynching. Um, and so it's, it's a little bit curious as to why in 1882 the Chicago Tribune begins to try to um, tabulate the number of lynchings. But nonetheless, it's, you know, because they did that, it's provided us some fairly concrete figures on the number of lynch victims in America um, in that year and going forward. And so uh, thanks to the Chicago Tribune, as well as later the NAACP um, and a few other uh, um, uh, anti-lynching groups, uh, we have a a fairly robust uh, idea of the number of lynchings that occurred in America beginning in the late 19th century. Some people would be surprised by occasions where blacks were lynched by other blacks. Yes. How often did that occur? Well, not often. Um, In the history 
of lynching, we only know that about 148 cases of black vigilantism occurred. An African, a group of African Americans lynching another African American. Um, it, it, although it sounds shocking to us today, because again, we typically perceive a lynching to be about uh, a, a group of whites lynching a black person. When we think about the late 19th century, before lynching has become racialized, before black people are synonymous with lynch victims, lynching is a form of uh, of social control. And in some communities, and particularly black communities, rural black communities in the South, it's a form of crime control. Uh, one of the things that becomes really clear uh, when you study black vigilantism closely is that um, there's this belief that white authorities who are in control um, refuse to punish crimes perpetuated that black people perpetuate against other black people. They tend not to, you know, investigate. They tend not to get charged. They tend not to be punished in general. And so, in in so, in regard to some crimes like rape and murder, you had groups of African Americans who felt that the criminal justice system wasn't working, wasn't going to work, take the law into their own hands, and lynch alleged or suspected uh, deviants, who, again, they committed. Uh, typically, when a black lynch mom uh, lynched another black person, it was for the crime of rape or murder. Those were the two primary uh, allegations that uh, precipitated uh, black vigilantism. And so really serious violent crimes, uh, whereas in comparison, when we talk about white um, black lynching, there are at least a hundred reasons that have been given, that were given for lynching a black person. Some serious, some silly uh, from the perspective of, you know, the 21st century. And so while, you know, black vigilantism is lynching, and I don't try to you know, walk away from that. It is lynching. It is, you know, these were extra legal, um, you know, executions, and you know, but they were different um, in, in the terms of what motivated them and why they occurred. What was the response of the black press at that time? In many ways, they were, it, the black press in the 1880s, as far as I've been able to ascertain was silent about black vigilantism in the 1880s and in the early 1890s. But again, this is before lynching has become a, ra a form of racial social control, and the narratives that are that are that are used to explain and justify lynching uh, are, you, are are racialized. Once this, once it becomes racialized, then you see the black press, um, you know, condemning lynching in all forms, whether it's black vigilantism or white on black vigilantism. And so it, it took, you know, uh, you know, apologists of lynching to really try to, um, you know. When, when, as they racialize lynching to take the black press to really take a hard and fast stance on it. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Soldier. We're in discussion on our program with a number of guests over the course of our show. This is a big uh, football Sunday on WFAN. 
We're in discussion with Dr. Carlos Hill. This portion of our program is the author of Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory. More with you, Dr. Hill, as we continue this Sunday morning. We're talking on our program with Dr. Carlos Hill. Uh, Dr. Hill is an associate professor of history at Texas Tech University. He's talking with us about his book, Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory. I'm Bob Salter. You know, I mentioned in introducing you that you're an associate professor of history at Texas Tech. What do your students say about this topic? You know, my students have the the kind of reactions that I had when I first started studying lynching. They're they're appalled by the that, you know, a person, an American citizen could be lynched, could be executed in in broad daylight and nothing happened to the individuals um who committed this this crime. Um they're appalled by that. They're they're appalled by the brutality. Um of lynch mobs, they're they're appalled by the just the the, the coarse and callousness uh, of individuals in terms of um, justifying lynchings, and so uh, part of what I try to do as a as a as a as a, uh, a scholar on lynching and someone who teaches about this is to try to get them to move beyond that you know that that sort of that jerk, that sort of jerk reaction of being appalled, and try to really understand why these individuals saw lynching as something that was normal, that was acceptable, that was morally justifiable. Uh, how they saw it as a part of the, the fabric of society, just the way things were. Um, I try to get them to understand that because if they don't, if they just walk away being appalled, they really haven't learned um, about the history of lynching. And so they tend to have the same reaction, but over the course of the semester, they began to understand that lynching was a part of a broader social system. It was part of Jim Crow segregation. It was a part of disenfranchisement. Um, and so it, 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 was, uh, one, it was a part of a three-legged stool um, in, in uh, 20th, early 20th century America that made the society work. And so once they get that perspective, Although they they remain appalled, they have a deeper understanding of how this could happen, and no one, particularly white Americans, do something uh, to prevent it. And so it's a process, um, but typically over the course of the semester, students come out on the other side. It's interesting when you look at the way in which, you know, the black newspapers would characterize those who were lynched as empowered and heroic versus the way that an organization like the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, will frame those same people as dehumanized victims. Why do you think there's that different treatment of basically the same stories? You know, what I say in the book is that, you know, the lynched black body as a symbol was a floating signifier. What I mean by that in just plain English is that over time, black people have thought differently, had had different attitudes and different agendas for the lynch black body as a symbol. And so for the NAACP, who, you know, lobbied Congress from, you know, 1920 
all the way through 1950 for an anti-lynching law or for a federal anti-lynching law. It was important for them to present African-American lynch victims as victims, even perfect victims who needed the federal government to intervene on their behalf. And so it was incumbent upon the NAACP to present lynch victims as as being brutalized, as their civil rights being trampled upon, and the only entity in this country that could actually uh, intervene to, to prevent lynchings from occurring uh, and to protect African Americans, helpless African Americans, helpless victims, was the federal government. And so because of that, the NAACP needed to present black people in this way. Whereas when you when you move outside of the political realm and you have African-American activists as well as African-American writers trying to understand black lynch victims as something more than perfect victims, something more than helpless victims, and there's also this need to try to cope with the trauma of lynching, one of the strategies became to to conceive of black lynch victims as not simply victims, because they were victims. And those writers who portray them as heroic figures acknowledge that, but they're not only victims, and that's the key, because if they were only victims, there was no empowering story that one can tell. There was no redeeming story that one can tell. And so for some black writers, I argue in the book that um, Ida B. Wells Who's sort of the you know the modern you know, who was a modern anti-lynching crusader? Um, she begins this genre of uh, what I call consoling narratives, which is this genre of portraying African American lynch victims as heroic figures. And the way in which they were portrayed as heroic figures is because uh, they fought back against their uh, you know against white lynchers. In some cases, they killed white lynchers. And so I, I emphasize um, African-American, uh, you know, writers who, who portray black lynch victims as courageously standing up to the mob, killing some members of the mob, but nonetheless fighting back. And in doing so, they, you know, they claim their citizenship. Even in some cases, they, they're able to claim their manhood that was being deprived by lynch or was attempted to be deprived by lynch mobs. And so in all these ways, black writers try to tell from the same story, right, a different story, a story of, of empowerment and heroic uh, and heroism in order to create what I call a usable past or a past that could become a basis uh, for empowerment. And so this, this is how uh, and why um, black people particularly in these two circumstances, have seen very different things in the lynch black body. The Behind the Veil Oral History Project was a resource that you used when writing your book. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, the, the Behind the Veil Oral History Project that uh, that was based or is based at uh, Duke University began in the late 19 or the mid-1990s and sort of uh, came to an end in the late 1990s. But what the Behind the Veil Project did is it it um, went around the South. Uh, there were interviewers from Duke University, mostly graduate students, that went around the South interviewing African Americans, typically in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, 
about uh, their lives during the Jim Crow period. And so this is, you know, they in, in doing that, they amassed um, several thousand uh, interviews with African Americans who had lived during the era, even some whites who lived during the era. And basically that archive of interviews gave me a basis for trying to understand the impact that lynching had on black communities during this era. But more importantly, how those individuals remembered the history of lynching, how they uh, how they narrated stories about lynching. And so <clears throat> I was really interested in to see how, you know, various groups of African-Americans, so wealthier African-Americans or upper-middle-class African-Americans, working-class African-Americans, African-Americans um, who had been children versus adults during uh, this period, um, you know, how did they remember lynching? And so um, in many ways, they the, the kinds of the kinds of narratives that they told were were eerily similar to the kinds of narratives that people were telling during the 1920s and 1930s about the history about lynching, and so um, and so the range of stories that were told were, were very similar to the stories that were told earlier, and so. Um, and so, yeah, without that archive of, of sources, I wouldn't have been able to to really talk about how ordinary African Americans conceived of, thought about um, the history of lynching. Final thought for you. You're very kind with your time, too. The Black Lives Matter movement obviously has gotten an awful lot of attention and focus in this country, and as a result, has basically spawned what some would refer to as kind of a counter-narrative uh, campaign. What parallel, if there can be, can be drawn to the kind of campaign that was engaged in against lynching? Hey, I mean, today, you know, Black Lives Matter is pushing against the narrative that these shootings of unarmed African Americans are justifiable killings or justifiable shootings. They're really pushing against that narrative. And they're trying to seeking to replace that narrative with the narrative of these are instances of police brutality. These are instances of excessive force. And so absolutely the Black Lives Matter movement, the heart of that movement is about telling a counter narrative of these police shootings of unarmed African Americans. The parallel is during the early, or excuse me, the, the early 20th century, you had apologists, particularly white apologists of lynching, saying that the reason why these lynchings are necessary is to subdue um, black savagery. And I know that language sounds really, um, you know, harsh, but in the early 20th century, um, African-American men were seen, were, were portrayed as black beast rapists who were raping white women. And in order to subdue or to contain, you know, black sexual deviance, right, lynching was necessary. And so you had people like Ida B. Wells, who I mentioned earlier, um, as a anti-lynching crusader, um, who sort of comes along and argues that African-American men aren't raping white women um, 
um, they are, in, in many ways, the reason why they are lynched is because they're agitating for their so- social and political rights. And so she sought to displace that narrative of black beast rapists with the narrative of white lynchers are lynching blacks because they are agitating for social, political, um, and economic equality. And so there are definite parallels between the Black Lives Matter movement of the 21st century and the anti-lynching movement, uh, whether it's the NAACP or Ida B. Wells of the early 20th century. And so in many ways, what the history of lynching teaches us is that narratives matter, right? How how the ordinary person conceives of, thinks of uh, social phenomena matters. And so the way in which you get people to change their attitudes is not necessarily to convince them of uh, of the to convince them that they're right or they're wrong, but to get them to understand a new narrative. And if you can get them to understand a new narrative, become more sensitive to a narrative, maybe you can change, ultimately change attitudes um, about a particular phenomenon. And so, I think that's what that's that's the lesson that I think, um, you know, if Black Lives Matter. If, if if the Black Lives Matter movement or elements of the movement um, are, are interested in this, the history of lynching, that's one important lesson to take from it. The voice of Dr. Carlos Hill, our guest in this portion of our program. He's an associate professor of history at Texas Tech University, author of Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory. Thank you very much for being kind with your time. Certainly uh, good luck with this book and with your work. Certainly, it's a wonderful discussion as well. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Bob. It's another huge sports Sunday here on The Fan. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Dr. John Huber. He has spoken with us before. He's the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, which is a nonprofit organization we'll find out about in the course of our discussion. And we're going to be talking about the number of people in this country who are afflicted by stress. Yes, I said stress, something that a lot of people can identify with. Dr. Huber, first of all, it's nice to talk with you again. Thank you for having me on, Bob. I appreciate it. Thank you. Mainstream Mental Health, how do you describe the organization? We are a nonprofit organization, and our main goal is to try and destigmatize mental health through uh, communication and education and opportunities just like this to talk to the public. How has the organization been received over the years? Uh, we've actually, you know, we get lots of accolades, and it's it's very good for us. We get lots of opportunities from from radio to television and print magazines and things like that to talk about mental health. And uh, we're getting to the point now where we're starting to work on uh, trying to be advocates, actually finding alternative pathways for uh, different groups of people, like our veterans, to get uh, some outside psychotherapy help. Which is a good thing because, you know, you think of what the veterans have been through and then you think of those very troubling statistics that we often hear about with what happens with veterans when they return to this country. Exactly. You know, 22 suicides on average every day from our veterans, yet the average wait period to get to see a therapist to the VA is over 130 days. Mm. In fact, some areas of the country, it's as bad as 13 months. Wow. Our focus in our discussion today is talking about this uh, poll that has come out, talking about the fact that 80% of Americans are afflicted by stress. Are you surprised by that? No, actually, what I'm surprised by are the 4% who say they are never 
Never affected my stress. <laughs> Maybe they didn't understand the question, huh? <laughs> well, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> and when we say stress, I mean, what, what exactly are we talking about? Because uh, uh, there, there obviously are different levels of stress. Oh, definitely. Definitely different levels of stress. And one of the biggest things is, is time management, but that has actually dropped. Uh, the, probably the biggest to our children and money. Those are the, the biggest two stressors. And it causes us to start worrying and, and trying to alter our, our existence to try and help alleviate some of that stress. Mm. And when we think of how it is that you know, stress impacts our lives, it, it can impact our lives on an ongoing basis, can it? Oh, it can be very chronic, and you can end up with not just increased, you know, levels of high blood pressure, but definitely levels of uh, stroke and, you know, inclination to be affected by things like heart attacks, as well as how our body just responds with our immune system and our ability to repair ourselves when we're healing from a wound or a surgery. Okay, that's on the physical side that's we can quantify for some people. They may not understand though, how stress affects mental health. Can you explain that? Well, one of the big things that happens is, you know, you stop being able to use your normal brain functions normally. For example, uh, learning new material. Like if you're a college student and you're stressing out, then that's probably the worst time for it to happen to you. It's going to make it very difficult for you to learn a new concept, say in chemistry or physics. And then you're going to have demands placed on you to have to be able to regurgitate that and use it. So it, it can actually affect on either end your ability to learn it or your ability to pull it out. Ask any mother who's approaching her, her delivery date how good her memory is, and she will tell you, and probably most fathers, that they have no memory. They're so stressed out from the you know, impending pregnancy. And uh, it, it can be problematic for people like, like physicians, who are having to, you know, recall uh, the different r rules for symptomology to rule out different illnesses and things like that, what types of medications to have, all the way to, to just school teachers and having to remember what they need to be teaching their kids. It's very, very impactful to have just minimal levels of stress. It's amazing how it affects our, our memory. For medical practitioners, it's interesting that you mentioned them because very often lay people may take almost for granted that, you know, a medical practitioner is going to be able to handle and manage the stress that they're under in terms of uh, workload and things like that. But is that always the case? Well, it's not always the case. And that's why we have certain uh, policies and procedures within the different, you know, medical fields, whether it's, it's psychiatric or surgery and things like that. And one of the things is that uh, we, we always refer to our reference materials. We don't always just do things off the top of our head, even though you may be able to do that at different times. Uh, referring back to current research, it's one of the reasons why, why physicians, psychologists, psychiatrists, surgeons, all the way across the board, have to do what we call continuing education. We have to keep involving ourselves in current research and what is the 
uh, level of care for different types of element, elements of uh, medicine across the board. And that whole idea of continuing education also gets into, you know, the idea of using one's brain. I mean, that the stimulation of that has, has got to, I'm assuming, also have an impact in alleviating some stress. Oh, it does. And one, one of the things we often do is we get into ruts. And if you're very comfortable with the way things are going, it's uh, oftentimes, you know, you don't necessarily see the need for that continuing education, but there is a, a reason for it. And part of it's the process. It's not necessarily that you're going to learn brand new information every year because you may be state of the art. You may, you may be the people or the person people are calling and saying, how do we proceed in this procedure? What's the next step? Uh, but the reality of it is exercising your brain uh, as far as trying to learn new material or explore new ventures in your profession uh, is one of the best ways to increase memory and keep that function moving forward. And uh, it, it, there's evidence that suggests that it may ward off things like dementia and different types of Alzheimer's and things like that. So it's a very positive, active thing for us to do. Ways that people can reduce their stress in addition to what you've said? Well, I think one of the first things is time management. You know, we, we talked briefly about that at the beginning, about 40-some-odd uh, percent of people, you know, they relate all their stress back to, to not feeling like they have enough time. And that's pretty much remained a constant over the years. The difference is, you know, are you able to cope with not having enough time? So work on time management skills. I mean, keeping a calendar, it's one of the ways, you know, you and I communicate, you know, we have a calendar that, that tells us, hey, Bob wants me on this show at this time, at this date, so I make sure I'm prepared and ready to go as opposed to, you know, hey, I'm driving to, to, to Walmart to get a last-minute Christmas gift and Bob's <laughs> calling me and I'm in the in the cookie section because I skipped over to the bakery instead of getting a present. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, it, it, it's interesting you say that because, again, We've all been through that situation where you were supposed to be somewhere, you were supposed to <laughs> complete a task, and you're doing something completely different, and either you get that phone call, and your heart your heart skips a beat when you see the number usually, or you start hearing the words in the message, or it's just all of a sudden the light bulb goes on over your head as you're in that bakery section of the store and you think, <laughs> oh my goodness, I was supposed to pick up X, Y, Z and All it's right. on the other side, side of town. Or mm -hmm. I was supposed to be at such and such an appointment that's two or three towns away. And it's like, <laughs> I completely forgot. And just that feeling that comes over you then is something that yes, many people can then start beating themselves up and you know almost working themselves into a frenzy over this unless you start to manage this. Exactly, and and the the fact is too that we are humans and we do make mistakes. On oh occasion. yes, <laughs> and and if you're able to manage most of the time and you just have this infrequently 
terrorist you know situation it, it's it's much easier to deal with because hey you know maybe maybe i spent too much much time playing video games last night and that's why i forgot uh you know maybe my kids wanted me to go and and take them to a concert or to a show and so i stayed up later than i anticipated but uh that's easier to manage if everything else tends to go according to plan, so to speak, but you need to have the plan. And that's where we get a lot of control as far as time management. Probably the next biggest things, you know, are children. And that can be directly related to time and time management, but it's not always. A lot of times kids don't know uh, or have the insight to say, oh, well, you know, I, I know I've got this high school activity here, but I meant to tell you I needed, you know, six different things before I get there. (laughs) Yeah, I just remember to tell you 30 minutes before we're leaving. Right. You know, (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, if it hasn't happened to you, it's because you don't have kids. (laughs) Uh, That's (laughs) because that's the way kids are. Their their brains aren't fully developed. They they tend to take up until their mid-20s before their brain is thinking like what we consider a normal adult brain and uh, that's that's something that as an individual you don't really have control over it's a practice makes perfect kind of situation as opposed to perfect practice makes perfect and what about the whole impact on stress of physical exercise physical movement as opposed to working your brain well several things that I I try to get my patients who are dealing with stress like this is physical exercise. It's amazing how cleaning out your system, you know, your your lymph system works really great as long as the blood gets moving. It also restores neurotransmitters back to a normal state. Uh, The stress hormones that are released are able to be cleaned out by your body physically, just the actual physical process, whatever we exercise. And I encourage it. I mean, exercise to exhaustion is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be very advantageous uh, for things like high blood pressure and like that. Of course, make sure you're physically fit and well enough to do the exercise, but you don't want to trigger that because maybe you haven't exercised in a long time and now you have high blood pressure. But uh, there's an enormous amount of benefit to be had from exercise dealing with stress. Plus, you get that moment, that time away. It's amazing how when you're focused on a physical act, your brain kind of cleans out all the busy from the day you just had or from the impending day that's coming forward and gives your brain a chance to decompress. Mm. We're talking with Dr. John Huber on our program. He's the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, which is a nonprofit organization on the web at Mainstream Mental Health. That's all as one word, dot O-R-G. And he's talking with us about this new Gallup poll that says about 8 in 10 Americans say they frequently or sometimes encounter stress in their daily lives. Do you expect that figure will actually increase in the future? You know, that's an interesting thing because one of the advantages of being in the modern age is all the new technology that's available that should be able to help us deal with stress. However, we're finding out that the new technology can create its own stress and its own types of stress. And, uh, you know, I think that number is relatively stable. We're going to see some fluctuations in it over time, but 
with each new technology we have, we're going to have people who are going to feel a reduction in stress, and then you're going to have uh, another group of people who are, it just creates much more problems for them to deal with. Because that technology, while at times it can be a blessing, and at other times it can be a real pain and a challenge too. And that takes some management as well. Dr. Huber, thank you very much as always for joining us on our program and sharing the information that you have. Certainly the best to you. Yes, sir. And thank you very much, Bob. I always appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Rick Wolf's along with the Sports Edge following our top of the hour update. You know where. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.